1: Our guest today is Ian Martins, the managing partner for Bell Curve. Ian currently runs operations at Bell Curve, which is a San Francisco based agency that helps startups and high growth enterprises grow. Bell Curve has worked with companies like Microsoft, Clearbit, Segment, and Pilot, to name a few. Before working with Bell Curve, Ian helped build the advertising agency Abacus, which worked with clients like Nestle, Starbucks, Campbell, CIBC, and more. Prior to his work building and growing agencies, Ian spent a number of years working at a global media agencies in account management, servicing a variety of clients, spanning everything from CPG to financial services. Ian has given talks at a number of colleges and universities on various marketing topics and spent a couple of years teaching at York University, where he helped develop the postgraduate curriculum in digital marketing. So Ian, welcome to the Second Fan Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And you mentioned um, just before we hopped on that you have a podcast yourself. So what's what was that podcast going, or what's all about? I that? did
0: actually. It's, so it's, it's not active anymore. It was when I was at Abacus, we myself and uh, the co-founder Jeff started a podcast called Idea Sex, um, and kind of pulling some some language from James Altucher. I, I feel like he used to to coin this idea of Idea Sex. And it was really you know when a couple of ideas come together and create something new. Um, you know, they're, they're having an idea baby. And so we thought that was a great idea for, for, for a podcast.
1: That's crazy. Cause so James and I are in a couple of uh, mastermind groups together and that must be where I heard the term was at a group called mastermind talks from James around probably seven years ago, eight years ago, because I've gone to the main Ted conference for 11 years and I used to call it ideas, having sex. And that must go. be because I knew it wasn't my idea. I knew it wasn't my term not that, that's interesting. So now I know the genesis of what I've been calling it all along. I can actually give credit. Uh, James, unless,
0: unless he pulled it from somewhere else. He that, might have pulled, he I, pulled where it, where it from I me. I was exposed to it. Yeah. yeah
1: I, I don't think it was my idea and I would give him credit for it. I mean, he's a, he's a smart enough cerebral dude that he would have thought of that. And and like I said, I've been, I've known him for years. So smart guy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing this. So tell us a little bit about bell curve. What do you guys focus on today?
0: Yeah, so Bell Curve is, you know, primarily a, a growth marketing agency. I'd say what makes us, you know, different from a lot of other agencies is that um, we're really trying to bring together the disciplines of brand marketing and performance marketing. So traditionally, these are kind of two separate um, areas of practice in, in the marketing and kind of advertising worlds. And you have you know, the way that companies are structured internally, there's typically like brand teams and performance teams. Um, The way they select agencies is you've got kind of creative brand partners and then you've got performance like media partners and so on and so forth. So it's fairly segregated siloed approach um, traditionally. And we've seen a lot of um missed opportunities by having that approach. And so we're trying to bring those disciplines together and, and kind of do things a little bit differently.
1: And when you mention performance marketing, are you talking about performance like like the affiliate marketing side or just anything where you can have attribution back to, you know, the marketing pretty span? much
0: anything where you can have attribution back, but I'd say performance marketing is very much a shorthand for like paid acquisition. So anything that is, you know, paid media acquisition where you can, you know, attribute back
1: to to revenue. Right. Versus um just, yeah, general branding. and General marketing. higher
0: level brand marketing. that's yeah. harder to attribute, generally, longer term focused, non-transactional. I'm thinking about it in terms of like transactional or non-transactional marketing is another way to slice yeah. it.
1: One of, our, um, one of our, our founding members of the COO Alliance was a guy named Matt Wool, and he and Bob Glazier run a company called Acceleration Partners. And they're in the, mm-hmm. I think, the pure, almost like higher end affiliate space. So they'd, they'd really have niched into it, wouldn't they?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because... Um, For a number of years, and even the last agency I built was all on this um, hypothesis of the increasing need for specialists, right? Um, And and the way that brand started selecting partners and agencies to work with was moving away from agency of record who does everything to a network of agencies that are are specialists, just because things are becoming more and more complicated. Um, But like with any trend, what I've noticed over the past you know, a couple of years is that pendulum swinging back to a desire for less complexity and the volume of partners and wanting to work with someone who understands the bigger picture. And so uh, Bellcurve, and, and when I came on board to Bellcurve to kind of relaunch that agency, our idea was to be actually more holistic and full funnel and less specialist in, in our approach to, to how we kind of service our
1: clients. Well, I think marketing has really changed in the last 20 years where, you know, 15 years ago to be an expert in paid search and digital and mobile and, and affiliates, like it was too hard. You know, it (laughs) was too many, it really was different businesses, but now it seems like there's a lot of convergence around that skill set. Is that true? Is that why there's a kickback or why do you think, or is it because we're just tired of managing so many partners? I think it's more the
0: latter. Um, I think the, the, complexity of each channel, I think is continuing and and, and will continue in that direction. But I think um, brand managers that are selecting these agency partners are having a very difficult time um, managing that complexity of various partners um, themselves. And all of those partners then kind of compete for bandwidth with the client, right? Mm. And you start getting into weird uh, power politics and Who's leading strategy and who's not leading strategy, and can we carve out more budget for our own services or our own channels and um, you know, the, the client loses in, in that mix as well, and, and they're you know, they don't enjoy that part of it.
1: And what's what do you, the, the term managing partner? Um, where do you fit in terms of like the C-suite or the org chart at, at Bell Curve? How does that all fit?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. So um, at Bell Curve, I joined three co-founders. So uh, Julian Shapiro is kind of the, the, co- the main founder, I, I believe. And um, he has Neil and Justin who joined him and they launched Bell Curve um, a number of years ago, probably four four years ago or so. Um, but then they ended up pivoting and building another business called Demand Curve. So Bell Curve was an agency that was focused on like actually executing on behalf of clients and then Demand Curve is more about empowering startup founders and growth marketers through education, through community, uh, through playbooks. And they paused the agency. So they, they ended up kind of winding down the agency, building this other company. It was part of Y Combinator, and they had a lot of success there. And then after a few years, they built out a bunch of brand, you know, affinity. Lots of people saying, hey, I don't want to learn this. I want you to do this for me. And so they saw the opportunity to boot back up the agency. And, and that's when they reached out to to me, say, hey, do you want to kind of take this brand that exists? We've got a bunch of inbound interest. You can, you've you already built an agency before. Do you want to mm. do that with us and kind of take the reins and, and relaunch this? So managing partner means I, I kind of joined them as one of their partners. Um, I oversee all of the responsibilities of the agency. Um, so I do report into them effectively that, you know, they're the majority shareholders and, and the uh overall context but they're not involved in in any of the operations on a day-to-day basis so we meet about once a month we go over progress with the kind of how the agency is doing where the financials are um i brainstorm with them you know if if, if i need some kind of uh sanity checks in in the decisions that i'm making on a day-to-day basis and uh uh, and then, but for all intents and purposes, I'm running the agency portion of the business.
1: That's super cool. Yeah. Like a true second in command, but with the power and with the power that a true second in command should have to go run the darn business too. So yeah, absolutely.
0: Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a big departure from um, kind of my, when I was a COO in my previous role building Abacus, which was more, uh, I would say a traditional, more COO role.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, you said something that I, I want to just jump on before I go into the, the real role and responsibilities and, and how, how you know what it was that got you to join these guys. Um, and it was around these companies that just didn't want to learn it anymore and they wanted to have someone do it for them. I feel like there's been a huge trend towards that now, too. It's like, look, we're aware of this. We now know that all this exists. We can't develop this expertise. We need to really turn to the experts. Is that really what's happening now? We just realized there's just way more depth in all these areas than we could possibly muster.
0: It's it's uh, that and it's um, you know a desire. I feel like to to build a true kind of functioning in house marketing department team takes a lot of desire to want to have that function in house and mm-hmm. and with that desire then comes a lot of time to make that engine kind of hum effectively. Right, um, a lot of the clients that we're working with are. You know, they're startups. They just raised Series A. They just got a big seed round. So, speed is is number one for them. They've only got a certain amount of runway. So, how yeah. can I start marketing and, and growing this business as quickly as possible? And so, the idea of learning the fundamentals of growth and running these experiments themselves and hiring for it, um, you know, it, there's a, a kind of that trade off of speed and, and agility.
1: Smart, super smart. Are, are your clinic? Now, you're, you're based in Canada, your founders are based in San Francisco. Where are your clients? So they're predominantly in the United
0: States, but we do have service some European um, clients as well. So I'd say we're, we're, we're open to servicing anybody in predominantly English-speaking markets. We don't have um, boots on the ground in, in, in other languages to, to kind of do that marketing work effectively. Um, you know, Europe, United States, um, no Canadian clients as of, as of yet,
1: though. Oh, funny. And now, do yeah. you have a network of, of companies that you outsource parts of this to as well? Or are you building all the competency in-house? No, so we that that's
0: kind of, I'd say one of our points of differentiation is is we rely heavily on on outsourced um, expertise. So, um, demand curve, which is the sister um, business, we've got over twenty thousand marketers in, in our network. Um, to and we've kind of got varying tiers in our Slack community and that sort of thing. And so we've been hand vetting and selecting a couple hundred of them over the past um, year or two, and and working with a number of them. And so we've adopted this idea mm. that our in-house is always going to be strategy. So growth strategy, brand strategy, creative strategy, and then we'll bring on like tactical execution partners to bring those strategies to life. And we really, we do this for two reasons. One, I don't believe agencies can actually own the best execution talent anymore. I think when you're the best copywriter, designer, whatever, you either go freelance and become a consultant, you start your own small agency maybe, or you go in house to a bigger brand. So if I can't own this talent, I need a way to get access to them if I wanna do the best work. So that's one reason. Um, And then the other reason is I find it aligns our incentives a lot closer with our partners because um, we're not trying to sell them one channel or one tactic. We're taking a agnostic view to their business and looking for what is going to be the highest leverage growth opportunity.
1: And you also don't need to have that expertise for 50 hours a week either. Like sometimes you need them for 12 hours a week and then it's like, what am I going to do for you for the next 38? Right. So. Yeah.
0: And that's one of the reasons why um, agencies are such a small margin business and Mm. traditionally, right. Like a good agency is, you know, pushing for 15% you know profit margins right. um, generally and, and it's because there's a lot of staff that they got to carry if they want to do all of this work in-house and it's not always fully utilized and, and all that sort of stuff.
1: So so you're managing is it a fully kind of distributed remote workforce now as well?
0: Yes, it, it, it was, their V1 of, of this before I took the reins and kind of relaunched was already remote. Um, demand curve is, is remote and um, you know uh, uh, all over the states and, and Canada. Um, and so we're distributed as well. And, and this is a, a pre-COVID plan. It's, it wasn't an adaptation
1: because of COVID. We, I just did a call with a group of um, second in commands about an hour ago, and we were just talking about some of the, um, not challenges from a negative way, but challenges of like, how can we continually get better? what have you had that were challenges to having that kind of remote distributed team and, and how can I give us the secrets? What's working? So, um, or, and, and or, or, and, or what have you tried that didn't work that you threw out? So people don't waste their time trying stuff that, you know, doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I'd go back to my time at Abacus and and give you some context there more specifically because we kind of went through two two iterations and um, that company went through a bit bigger of a growth cycle in terms of the size. But I'd say that one of the big differences is the amount of everybody being on the same page when you're all sitting around the same table, um, you you lose that in the remote context. And so how do I make sure that everybody feels like they're aware of everything that's happening in the business? How do I over-communicate so people don't feel like they're not part of conversations that they um, feel snubbed as in like, you know, and and it's feeling like a bigger, like there being a reason for them not being in that conversation when, when there wasn't, it was just because we needed to move forward and you weren't necessarily required for the decision. So I'd say managing those politics of, you know, who's in what rooms and what decisions and who's aware of what happening within the company is probably one of the bigger struggles of being in a remote context. And the way we've tried to address this is, you know, we're big users of Notion as a tool, as kind of our internal wiki. And so we, we just really push the idea of writing a lot, documenting things, putting this information uh, publicly visible in, in the company so that everybody has access to it and can go mm. look for these things if, if they need it. Um, Interviewing, hiring, and onboarding people in a remote context is, is definitely a challenge. It's more challenging than it would be in person. I think you get away with uh, being less formal about it when someone can just like watch over your shoulder and you can just sit beside them and you can kind of nudge them along throughout the day and kind of train them on their, their role. Um, in the remote context, you have to be a lot more um disciplined with how you're trying to train people. And it takes a little bit more homework and a bit more structure um, than it would if someone could just shadow you all day.
1: I think the interviewing and the hiring component is probably largely the same, right? You know, we can interview somebody over video, but the onboarding stuff. Yeah. How, so what have you learned in terms of onboarding and how do you have to do that differently when you're remote?
0: I wish I had the magic answer. I, I think, you know, and even, sorry, and, and, <laughs> and
1: even, and even with that, you know, are there lessons from getting better at onboarding that even if you were in person, we would now change too, right? Cause you probably got a yeah, better process. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I think it's, you know, t- taking from my time kind of building curriculum is, is this idea of actually building training curriculum for, for people and, you know, varying organizations do this more effectively than others. Some people have more formalized training curriculum in place than than other companies. I'm coming from advertising world. There's not much of it. Um, Most of the ad land curriculum comes from publishers like the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. And we lean on them to provide us with with training materials, but actually like, how does this company operate? What's your function in it? Um, There's very little materials even at like the global agency level Um, There's compliance stuff that they have, you know, gamified and what have you, but like actual day-to-day practical training, um, not a lot of that is structured or formalized. So I'd say what we've learned and would work very well in an in-person context is like formalizing that training in an actual um, kind of curriculum environment where there's certain tasks that people have to complete. There's certain readings that people have to do, um, certain context video content if you can film videos or um, so on and so forth I think that that has helped us um, and, and would be practical in, in an in-person setting as well
1: and do you and and do you use any kind of an LMS a learning management system for the onboarding and training do you have any software that you use or is we it just don't just-
0: we don't right now we everything's in notion so we're, we're trying to simplify our tech stack as much as possible. So people mm-hmm. aren't switching between tools all the time. Um, so right now, Notion is is kind of our wiki. It's where everything exists with relation to, to knowledge and information in the company. Um, and then onboarding tasks and actual like working through that is uh, we use a tool called ClickUp um, for all of our project management. So that's both for clients, for internal projects, and for onboarding kind of checklists um, that would all be delivered
1: through a tool called ClickUp understand. I haven't heard of that one. Notion has been getting a lot of buzz recently as well. Have you had any struggles with using that at all? It's a little slow. If it was developed
0: as a native app, I think it would be faster, um, which would be helpful. Um, I think the struggle is more of a like a human habit struggle, which right. is, you know, This idea of having a wiki in your company that you're updating, that you're referencing, that if I'm going to do a task that's going to be repeated a number of times, I may as well write the SOP for that as I'm I'm doing it, taking screenshots, that sort of thing. So it's more of a habit building to actually make that a useful up-to-date resource and not something that is not updated and then isn't particularly practical or useful.
1: How do you help people build that habit? How do you help get that adoption is it through training? Is it just reinforcing it? Is it?
0: It's, it's through reinforcement and it's, uh, and highlighting opportunities to like create that SOP or to, oh, we should put this in Notion for, for next time. Or, so it's, it's more about identifying the opportunities regularly and in day-to-day right. interactions, day-to-day work and saying, hey, this would be great actually if we put the, like formalize this and structured it a little bit and put it into, um, into Notion.
1: I remember when I was was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK when I was a COO there that when our franchisees would call us back in the early days, we used to say RTFM. They'd be like, what? I'm like, read the fucking manual. Like it was (laughs) every, like read Notion, right? Like go to Notion, like GTN or something. Like it was was in the manual. And if there was a better way, we didn't have the ability to update it live. You know, we had to wait for the next printing of the manual, right? Or we would send out a chapter. I remember one year we sent out a PDF of chapter seven and we're like, here's the PDF, like it's the updated chapter. But now I think it's a really great way to just say like, go to Notion, right? Like just it's there and, and yeah. don't, don't ask me, right?
0: And the other thing too that I think it instills, which is, is great, is I always have this idea that everything we create, particularly process-wise, is like, it's the idea to beat, like it's the best way we've thought about doing it thus far. So as you, as a new entrant into the company, you know, you've entered this role, you're reviewing the process. Something might stick out as being like odd or off or not great. And because it's documented, you can actually identify it and say, hey, hmm. why, why don't we do this this way instead? And, you know, you, you have now an anchor to actually have a conversation about it because it's documented in this notion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's one of my, one of my coaching clients, I've always said that your core values should be short phrases, not single words. And their fifth core value was a single word. I'm like, no, it can't be. And they go, it's simplify. I'm like, Oh, that's so good. And (laughs) like, it's just, it was perfect, right? Like there isn't a better, short phrase than that single word how do you make sure that the the systems and the playbooks that you're putting in place are simplified that they're not
0: we have a very high uh bar to aspire to so uh julian shapiro uh you know one of the founders is an incredible writer um, and he's published uh, quite well known for, for publishing like guides to writing effectively. And um, he's got, you know, over 100,000 followers on Twitter. And he writes a lot of, you know, do- things about life and marketing and what have you. And so he's kind of this pillar of highly effective, very pithy writing that I think permeates the, mm. the culture of the company. Um, you know, that it definitely influences the content that demand curve. Publishes that were so well known for as as a brand, and it's because it's very to the point, very actionable, very pithy, very low on fluff and filler, and so that has kind of influenced the the broader culture of the
1: company. Cool. All right, I want to go back to to kind of the day one for you. What the hell were you thinking? Like, why would you join this like nothing company? There was no cups customers or no employees that would it had been shelved, and you had to come in and dust it off and build it.
0: Yeah. So, um, and and by the,
1: and by the way, fucking a, like you great job. Right. So
0: in the middle of a pandemic, no less. Um, so that's how I started at, at, um, Abacus was very similar story. So I I was the first employee. I joined two co-founders. They have this idea for an agency. Um, they've got a bunch of relationships that they can leverage for sales, but the actual work of how the fuck do we deliver on what we're promising and how the work gets done and how we hire people. Like, none of that figured out at all. And they're like, you're going to be the head of our, our performance department initially. And then I became the COO very quickly after that um, to actually fulfill the promises they were out there delivering in their sales calls. And so just kind of building the airplane on the way down. And I really enjoyed that experience of, of kind of starting at, okay, here's kind of the vision or the brand or what have you. How do I make this something and, and really build it up. And I had a lot of fun doing that with with abacus over four years. And, you know, we started off working with startups and ended up working with like fortune 100 clients and, um, you know, built that up to almost 50 people in terms of the, the size of the company, um, you know, high, you know, mid seven figure revenue and that sort of thing. And I just had a lot of fun going through that initial phase. And I found when it kind of got to cruising altitude and i had empowered really great leaders and we had it brought on you know uh, really strong you know partners to the table and everyone was doing their thing i found that my boring. usefulness in the organization changed and 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 my role changed and um and, and I, this is an oversimplification but my role really became kind of uh you know helping people manage their inter uh, like their, their own personal problems and, and kind of babysitting to a degree, less building product and figuring out processes and finding customers and like that type of work. And, and that's really what excited me. It was when it got to the, the maintenance level, um, at least in, in terms of what I was experienced, I was kind of looking around at, okay, well, what's gonna come next for me? Um, we knew we wanted to exit that company and, and sell it as well. I was a little nervous about, okay, who's gonna acquire this and am I gonna be stuck in an earnout? So that was part of the thinking as well. Um, And so when the challenge was presented to me, I was already familiar with Demand Curve, the brand. I was familiar with um, Julian and and kind of his thought Mm -hmm. leadership and his communication. And I said, hey, here's a group of really smart people. Um, They're in, you know, Silicon Valley, which is, uh, you know, kind of this tech hub and all this stuff, exciting stuff happening. It's at the very least, it's an opportunity for me to expand my network if it doesn't, you know, if nothing takes off. Um, and if it does take off even even better, and you know it was a bit of me wanting to prove to myself, I did this once, can I do it again you know and and it's like if I had to go back four years and start again with nothing, could I do that again and and you know we're we're doing pretty good um you know we're about a year into it now
1: so in that in that first year it's the speed of, of getting shit done and out the door, right? It's not about perfect. It's like momentum creates momentum and vin- minimum viable everything, right? Like just get mm-hmm. her done, get her out the door. How, how did you focus to get the highest ROI on that, on that year? What are some of the things that you did? Um, and, and maybe what were some of the, the hurdles or roadblocks that were in your way along that path? The biggest thing to me is this idea of
0: like, why is anyone gonna give a shit? in terms of like the customers, because the world does not need another agency, right? Right. And so for us to come in and build up from scratch and everything, it's like, what are we going to do that's different than everybody else that is going to allow us to find customers and and kind of build an agency? And um, we landed on this idea of, The biggest problem that I saw through all of my work, you know, in in, in agencies and talking with founders and all of that was this gap between performance and brand and particularly startups, they don't pay a lot of attention to brand building out of the gates. They're very transactional. They need customers. Um, and so the brand is a bit of an afterthought. And so this idea of, can we help them build brands simultaneously? Brand is part of your moat, just as much as your IP is, is part of your moat. And how do we, we bring these two disciplines together as being a differentiator and kind of taking this story-led approach to growth? So i say that the picking how we're going to differentiate ourselves was part of that focus. And then everything kind of stemmed from that in terms of what's the company we're going to build if that's what we're what Mm. we're thinking and so another thing I was thinking about is like client agency relationships are not in a good place Um, in general there's a lot of pressure there and that it doesn't change if you're you know, Fortune 100 dealing with global media agencies and advertising agencies, or if you're a startup trying to find an agency, that relationship's not in a great place. And it's like analyzing why is that not in a great place? What can be done to, to change that? And it's so you know, a, a, hard. It's so hard. And and both parties are guilty for different reasons in that, right? In, in yeah. that ecosystem. And um, so we, 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 we kind of started off with, okay, well, what do we need to do to fix that? Like one of the things is, it's hard to be an agency, profit margins are low. So what do we have to do different to have a high profit margin? High profit margin means we can pay people better, which means that um, we can get better talent than other agencies. It means that we can be more choosy with not needing to take every single client, even if they're not a fit. And so this idea of optimizing for profit in the business model was a very um, big focusing for us. And and that's what led us to that kind of distributed, business model where we're bringing on external experts and pairing them with our strategists. So it was picking, I think, the right problems initially that we wanted to address that made all of the other decisions much easier hmm. um, as we were building up the company, because we had a very clear understanding of what it is we were trying to build and what problems we were trying to solve.
1: So I I just, I was on a call with our agency a few hours ago and, and I was laughing with their four or five people and, and my team was on the call. And I said, you know, your CEO and I aren't gonna kill each other. Like, I don't think he's loving me and I haven't been loving him, but I feel like we're turning a corner. Like it felt fucking seven, eight months later. I was like, I think we're actually getting this. And And I think one of the only reasons why I'm still a client, why they haven't fired me and I haven't fired them is because their CEO and I are friends or want to stay friends and we're not willing to let this get in the way but there's so two sides to every story with this, right? Like the, and how do you get the customer on the side of the brand and how do you get the brand or the, the agency and the agency on the side of the customer to really join hands and, and get through that? Is it an education thing? Is it an expectations thing? Is it a... It's a selection, it's a selection process. So I think it's
0: like going into it, the understanding that you're not going to be the right agency for everybody that you're only going to be able to make certain kinds of clients happy because every agency has a personality. It's like relationships. It's a relationship-based industry for the most part. It's humans working with other humans. So your agency has a personality and it and a way that it wants to work in a way that it sees the world. And then it's your job as an agency to find clients that also see the world the same way and have a similar working style. right? So if you're the type of client that is used to being wooed by multiple agencies and there's a lot of dog and pony and you require a lot of decks and reports and all that sort of stuff. We are not the agency for you. We are an extension of your team. We are roll our sleeves up, get shit done kind of hacky growth you know, company that is going to 80, 20 things and try to stretch your budget to be most effective as possible. Um, so we're looking for people that are that want that type of service and want that type of relationship. We want people who when it comes to things like attribution of, you know, how the media is performing or the desire to invest in brand and what have you, we want people who are approaching it from the same kind of principles as we are in terms of how we we see the world. And because if if someone doesn't believe in investing in brand, nothing that I tell them is going to change their mind on that. And, and I can't work with you if you don't see the power of brand and how that influences your performance marketing. And so I think it's about understanding your personality really as an agency and, and selection of the right clients. Now, year one, you don't always get to do that, right? Because you've got to keep the lights on and you got to grow and you got to bring yeah. on enough revenue to actually get a, a start. I think we got a bit of a head start because there was already a lot of inbound interest. So we had a lot of leads coming through on a month-to-month basis because of the brand affinity towards demand curve and bell curve. So I I had a head start. I wasn't building from scratch. And so that, that allowed us to be a little bit more choosy. The other thing that we did is we went fairly upmarket in terms of independent agencies and, and how much we're charging. And so that whittles down the overall pool of people that we're willing to work with as well. They actually have a certain amount of cash and capital to invest, which means we can bring on smarter, better people, which generally leads to better results and then better relationships because there are better results.
1: Are the clients expecting too much too soon or, and, or, are the clients spending too much on the actual advertising and not enough to the agency? It's almost like, should we, should we give the agency more money and put less into the actual ad spend?
0: Uh, I, I would say that there's no, there's no like silver bullet answer to that question, but I would say that those are definitely variables. I'd say expectations about what's possible in a very short time timeframe. Um, I think oftentimes clients have unrealistic expectations about like what is actually possible. Um, that's definitely true when it comes to like performance media buying like Mm -hmm. this idea that I can just spend my first five, 10, 15, $20,000 and get an immediate return on that is, is, is a little, um, crazy because if you rewind 20 years, when you were buying magazine or TV ads, you would never have had that expectation. And so now because you can measure it down to the penny, you expect performance down to the penny immediately. So there is a little bit of, of, a, of an education gap there. Um, in terms of the paying the agencies more, absolutely. I think you get what you pay for. And um, most agencies are just trying to survive. It's a high, most operate on a very high turnover, um, if you're not talking about the global, like holding co-agencies, them aside, independent smaller agencies, um, it's very high turnover. Like you're you're trying to keep a client for three to six months, and and then you're they're leaving, and you're you're kind of refilling that, and so you're never investing enough in the relationship. It becomes very transactional, and it's because. You're, they're not getting paid that much. They're, they're, they're not I, making enough money to build a, a high margin business. It puts a, lo- a lot of stress on their employees because they're managing too many clients simultaneously, which stresses them out. It leads to poor quality of work um, that I they're that, able to deliver. It's like a, It's a big cascading snowball of like bad
1: things. I think that's actually what happened to me with our agency was he, my friend tried to do me a favor and make it really cheap for us to hire him so that we could spend money. But then because of that, they didn't want to put all their best people on it. So we kind of got their solid B and C pluses. So we weren't getting the results. So I was getting frustrated in one of the results. And then I'm not paying enough. And then they want more budget. I'm like, but you're not doing enough to validate the budget. It's almost like I should have given them more money for more talent and spent less. Um, yeah.
0: Or, the, the other thing I see too is... Or they should have just said to me,
1: no, let's go skiing together. Let's not be business associates, right?
0: Yeah. It's, it's always a, it's a hard it's really hard because sometimes you get lucky with some clients. Sometimes um, your B or C team can make it work Mm. because like the, the the demand is really easy to target and um, there's pent up, you know, like they, they transact very quickly, you know, and, and you get lucky. And, and so that team can actually do it well. When it's a harder nut to crack, you, you kind of need the A team. And then sometimes it just like, it, it won't work in that context and you need to be creative about finding other channels, other mediums, other ways to grow the business that isn't like advertising. Like maybe you need to lean harder into partnerships and to, you know, content and to other things that aren't necessarily just like paid acquisition, advertising. Right. Um, I don't know the context of the work that you're doing with them, but but that would be an example.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to talk. I was going to ask you some questions about marketing and I'm like, there's, there's no answer. It's like the, the question, the stupid question was going to be like, so what are the best tactics? There aren't, there aren't the best because there's a million scenarios, right? Let's talk about your team. What's the best way to actually manage a team of creatives and to manage a team of, of, you know, the marketers. Let's say we were building an in-house marketing team as a company listening the, you guys are are just a different breed, man. Yeah. So there's like the quant side of the marketing org, and then there's like yeah. the qual side of the marketing
0: org, and, and and I would say that the way that you find them, hire them, and manage them are, is very different. Yeah. They're motivated by different things. So let's talk about. Um, the creative side, because I think that that's probably the the breed that is most different.
1: I think the quants of, are the easiest, right? Like the numbers yeah, yeah, and yeah. buyers now, like that's they're easier. So a little to more manage.
0: like linear logic, yeah. Newtonian type thinkers. Okay. So let's go on to the, the creative side. I think when you're when you're trying to hire creative people um, to get the good ones, you have to be doing work that is going to allow them to be very creative, right? So I'd say. If you want to build an in-house agency and you need to hire creative people, you should be very honest with yourself about: Do I run the kind of business that a creative person can genuinely do really good creative work? Mm. And if you can't, you're better off going to a creative agency. So, like, what's the kind of company that could really hire a great creative in-house? Nike, (laughs) you know, Facebook, uh, Tumblr, something in the fashion space, something in CPG, like where you can really flex that creative muscle. If you are Um, selling B2B like management services, you're probably not going to have the most creative people want to join your team because they're not going to be able to build an extravagant portfolio that will get them the next job. And so I think that when you're managing creative people, that's another thing that you need to take into consideration as well is like, is this work going to help their portfolio? Because you'll get the best out of them when they believe that it's helping their portfolio because that book is what they live and die on for the rest of their career. And they're often optimizing for winning awards and and all that kind of stuff because as a creative, that's how you stand out. That's how you make more money. That's how you get the next gig. And, And so when they're looking at the briefs they're getting from you internally or what have you, first thing that's running through their mind generally is like, How's this going to look at my portfolio? Is this just a make work project or is this something I'm actually going to be able to put in there? Um, and, and so as you're building an agency, you need to take that into consideration. It's like, you know, again, with my model, it's like, do I want in-house creatives or do I not want them? Because right. if I can't keep them busy on enough exciting work, then they'll churn or I won't attract them to begin with, or I'll attract the B or C creatives who can't get a better job. And then I'm only doing B or C creative and and you don't want to be in that spot either, because creativity is in marketing is the big unlock. You can push all the buttons on the quant side, but if your creative is not right, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, it's interesting on on the you know the book of of what they've done in the past is what they're they're caring about. What that was what allowed us at one We Got Junk to attract some people in the early days was we were so intent on building this globally admired brand and a best company to work for in this cult like work environment that people were just like, I just want to fucking work here. Like they mm-hmm. knew that it was going to be a stamp. Like a, we, we competed against Lululemon, Vancouver Olympics, and Intrawest was the big Whistler block home, and then us. And mm-hmm. and it was the those are the only four companies that anybody wanted to work for in British Columbia in those years. Mm-hmm. And it was it, we were a garbage company, but it was because mm-hmm. they they wanted that stamp in their book because the cult you know was was all of a sudden strong prior to that though we couldn't get and in. you were
0: willing to do great marketing
1: um not even so much in the earlier days no. there are net more now, yeah, back I'm going back to like when i was c o o from two thousand to two thousand and seven, we didn't have a lot of dollars. we started to to get to that kind of five million dollar total budget um across our franchises, but it was more that we were building this cool brand and this cool cult and, and they were like, Oh my gosh, if I can say I worked for the number one company to work for in BC or the number two company in all of Canada, that was a nice stamp for them. Right. Um, Cause outside of that, we were just, you know, we were junk removal. We weren't like, we weren't anything super sexy. Can,
0: yeah. yeah, No, I, I don't think it's about the the sexiness. I think it's about like the opportunity to flex your creativity. And it's yeah. like, if I can make junk removal fun and cool and exciting, that I'm a very good creative communicator. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and so that challenge I think is is what the creatives are looking for, right? Um, and 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 had been then being given that opportunity to actually put work that they believe in out into into the market.
1: I'll have to show you a video. We we won the third place at the uh, Cannes Film Festival. We won a lion. Wonderful. For- for our TV ad called the rat advertising trial. And it was when we threw these little rats out of the truck, dressed in little one 800 got junk outfits and the rats went out and searching for junk. It was ridiculous. That yeah. We if junk. you're,
0: if you're talking to <laughs> that, and that's, that's the kind of thing that gets you good creatives. It's like, if you were winning Cam's lions, then you will continue to attract creatives.
1: Well, what's funny is we had no budget to run the TV ad other than in one market for six weeks, just to be proving that we'd actually run it. Cause for the can yet she had to be yeah. a running commercial. So that was so dumb. Yeah. Um, that, all right. That, well,
0: <laughs> that 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 whole side of the industry is its own problem. This idea of optimizing your creative to win awards versus actually driving results for your client right. in some cases can get a little murky. And so, you know, it's one one of those things where you have to have the right values on your creative team, and they have to be want to drive good value for customers ultimately or clients rather, because you can get into a place where you're just trying to do clever advertising to win awards. And there's a lot of shops that do that.
1: A lot of points, pointless, really. So I want to go back to the, the 22 year old self, you know, you're, you're graduating college, you're getting ready to start off in your career. What advice would you have for the 22 year old Ian Martins that you wish you knew back then that, you know, now you know to be true?
0: I wish I had reached out to mentors, other people in, in industries that I found interesting. I think that the, I, I perceived this like ivory tower in accessibility of like A players um, at the age of 22. And and I wouldn't just pick up the phone and, and call them. And I think if I had done that, I probably would have uh, progressed faster in, in, in learning and not necessarily needing to make all of the mistakes I did myself. Um, I think that that's, that's definitely some advice. The other thing I would say too is I've had a fairly like asymmetrical career trajectory and it's because I always approached everything that I did and I always looked for ways to like improve the general situation of everything around me. I was never really focused particularly just on the work that I was doing individually. I would always go in and, and yes, I do my job, but I'd always be kind of, observing everything around me and saying like how can we just be better fix things get better and and that ability to kind of help organizations do better work holistically has helped me kind of progress in 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 a way that I don't see a lot of people even that I've hired over the years and everything I'd say that's not the default position of most people. Mm. Most people come in very focused on me and my job and what I'm doing um, and they're not looking around them to like, how do I contribute and add value and help lift everybody up?
1: Do you have ADD? I don't think so. No, no <laughs> I've so. never been
0: diagnosed, but it, I might, who knows? <laughs> it's actually a
1: superpower. When you have ADD, you actually see everything around you in terms of, the, of everything that's going on in the business. And because you see everything, you do want to change it and, and react to it, but you it's, it's what's made, whether it's ADD or not, the fact that you are seeing all that, that's what's made you very successful as a COO because you actually are seeing the entire organization. You're not just sitting and looking at a silo. Yeah.
0: I've, I've, i i so I don't know if I have ADD, but I, I do have, um, so I, I'm subscribed to like Gallup strength finder is something that I've used over the years. And, and one of my kind of superpowers is like ideation in there, I'm learner. And so I'm, I'm very attracted to ideas and systems and mm-hmm. uh, future futuristic is one of them. And like, how do I look forward and do this better change what we're doing? Um, I'm very stifled by routine, by maintenance, um, you know, one of my, my weaknesses and, and it's harder it was much harder for me earlier on in my career because you're not in the management position is like execution. Like actually executing and following through and delivering like uh, that type like work in general is a, is a weakness of mine. So now that I'm in a position where I'm running companies, I can hire, you know to kind of offset that as a weakness but when you're a individual contributor starting your career you kind of it's really it was really tough for me to be an individual contributor because i just don't have that that discipline that dot all the i's cross all the t's type of brain and i had to do that work for a number of years to kind of move into a management spot but i'd say that 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 idea of being obsessed with ideas and learning and looking for better ways is is kind of what I attribute to um, me being a good COO because I can take an inspiration like of a couple co-founders and I can see how you would make that happen and put that out into the world and be like, okay, well, we need, these are all the things and pieces that we need. i probably wouldn't be the best at doing any of those pieces myself, but I can see how they all interlinked and kind of map together.
1: Totally. Totally. That's awesome. Ian Martin is the Managing Director for Curve. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you very much, Cameron. It's a pleasure being here. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.